I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 4. You know, if you read through the Gospels, one of the things that you're going to see is that Jesus had a way of breaking down cultural and religious and societal barriers when he lived here on earth, during his ministry on earth. He was definitely countercultural in a lot of ways. And the passage that we're going to read this morning is one of the most telling examples of that. We're going to see in this passage that Jesus went where most Jews would not go. And that was to a place, a region called Samaria. And he approached someone that most men in that society, most religious men certainly, would not approach. And that was a woman. And not only was she a woman, a Samaritan woman, but she was a woman with a bad reputation. And yet, what we're going to see is here is Jesus striking up a conversation with her. One that would change her life. And so if you look with me at John chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 38, so get comfy for a minute as we read. And the gospel writer says this, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Now his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. That's an important little parenthetical comment because they would have tried to have stopped him from having this conversation. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's speaking here, of course, metaphorically, but she doesn't get that. Verse 15, The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't have to be thirsty and, and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So naturally she's going to change the subject. Verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews, and you see the distinction here, our ancestors, Samaritans, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming 
When you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. It's an important statement. We're going to come back to that. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Jesus is frequently talking in metaphors and people are frequently listening in literal terms. Verse 34, my food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not have a saying, talking to his disciples, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth of it. And this morning as we open it and as we read it, we submit ourselves to you and the authority of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you a question this morning. How many of you have ever been on a cruise? It could be an overnight cruise, it could be a seven-day cruise, you've been on a cruise ship, been on a cruise of some sort. Yeah, most of you have been on a cruise. Well, many of you know that I grew up in Miami, which has one of the busiest cruise ports in the world. And I've seen cruise ships all my life. I've seen them docked at the port of Miami. They're lined up one after another. I've seen them going out to sea, carrying passengers on the cruises. I'm very familiar with what a cruise ship looks like on the outside. But in all my 45 years, I've never been on a cruise ship. I've never seen it on the inside. My parents have, my wife has, but I just have never done that. I don't know the first thing about what a cruise ship looks like on the inside, at least not from personal experience. I've seen pictures, television shows, that kind of thing, but not from personal experience. And most of my life growing up, I really didn't even know what happened on a cruise ship. I didn't know what the cruise ship experience was all about. And even now, I only know it through other accounts of other people. So while these ships were always close by, in proximity to where I was, they might as well have been part of another world. One to which I did not relate. They were a part of the culture of Miami. You can't live in Miami without knowing that thousands of people come there every year to go out on cruises. They were a part of the culture of Miami, but not a part of the culture with which I was connected. I saw them often enough, but I didn't really know anything about them. This morning, we're going to continue our series, The Jesus Factor. 
And throughout this series, what we're doing is we're looking at different groups of people, different kinds of people that Jesus interacted with in his earthly ministry. And we're examining how he interacted with these different kinds of people, these different groups. And so we saw how he interacted with the Pharisees. We saw how he interacted with just common sinners. And this morning, we're going to see how he interacts with another group of people. And from it, I want us to learn how we can interact with them too. How can we interact with cruise ship people in our lives? And when I say cruise ship people, I don't mean people who go on a lot of cruises. I mean people that we see all around us, people we are familiar with from a distance, but we never really interact with. We don't relate to them. I'm talking about people who are a part of our cultural landscape, but not a part to which we are personally connected. I'm talking about people like the Samaritans. The woman that Jesus talked to at the well that day was a Samaritan woman. And that meant something. The Samaritans were people who were close to the Jews geographically, but they were far away from them in terms of their culture and their religion. Geographically, they were right in the middle of Israel. Let's put up that next slide with the map on it. Geographically, they were right in the middle of Israel. You can see in the south is Judea. That's where Jerusalem is and Jericho. You can see in the north is Galilee. That's where Nazareth is, where, where Jesus grew up. And right in the middle is Samaria, and that's where the Samaritans. You see Sychar there is where Jesus met the woman at the well. Right in the middle. So they were close to them geographically. But strictly speaking, they weren't Jews. They were the product of an interracial marriage that happened when the Jews were exiled during the 8th century B.C., so nearly 800 years before Christ. The Assyrians were the world power, the superpower at that time. They came in, they conquered Israel, and they carried the best and the brightest of the population off to Assyria in exile. And in return, a number of Assyrians came in and took up residency in the land of Israel and Palestine, and they, they lived there. And of course, after a number of years, they began to intermarry marry with the Jews that had been left behind. And so you have a new group of people there. They're part Jew, they're part Gentile. It's a, it's a new mixture. And there was this, this cultural mixing that went on. But it wasn't just cultural. It was also religious. When they began to intermarry, they began to mix pagan religious practices with the true worship of the one true God. They created their own temple. They created their own priesthood. Yes, the Samaritans believed in God. They were very religious, but they misunderstood who God really was. And so their religion was a false religion. That's why Jesus said, you worship who you do not know. Because they were so close geographically. Because the Samaritans were a part of the the cultural landscape of that day. Every Jew would have been familiar with the Samaritans, but from a distance. They knew about them, but they didn't act or interact with them. The Samaritans were cruise ship people to the Jews. And here's what you need to know this morning. There are cruise ship people like the Samaritans in your world and in my world. There are people we see all around us. People that we interact with to a degree, but they are very far from us. They're different from us in a cultural and religious sense. And what does that do? That creates this, this barrier. That creates this gap. It creates this, this separation between us and them. 
But you and I, like Jesus, are called to reach out to these people. And so this morning, I want to give you three reasons why you and I must connect with the Samaritans that we find in our own lives. And the first reason is this. Seek out Samaritans because it is easy to avoid them. Seek out Samaritans because it is easy to avoid them. Let me flip that around and say it this way. Because it's so easy... To avoid people who are not like us, we must make it an intentional effort to seek them out if we are going to be like Jesus. The differences between the Jews and the Samaritans created this cultural barrier between them. And let's be honest, it's much easier to go with the flow of the culture than to go against it, isn't it? Much easier for us to go with the flow of the culture, whether that be the the culture at large that we live in or a a subculture that you're a part of. It's much easier to go with the flow of the culture. Case in point. Let's put that map back up, the next slide. If a Jew wanted to go, like Jesus, from Judea, maybe in Jerusalem, to somewhere in Galilee in the north, or vice versa, the other way around, Oftentimes what they do, many of them, what they would do is they would avoid Samaria. They did not want to be around these people. So they would cross over the Jordan River, they would bypass Samaria, and then they would cross back over in order to get to their destination. And so even though going through Samaria would be perhaps the shorter and most direct route, you would have to go against the cultural norm in order to take that route. Most people, the the well-worn path was to bypass Samaria. And most Jews just wouldn't go against the culture. But notice what it says in verses 3 and 4. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So going from the south to the north. Now he had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. He didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, he would not have, not, not a single person in that Jewish culture would have raised an eyebrow if he had just bypassed Samaria altogether. That means Jesus made a conscious decision to go through Samaria because it was the only way that he could reach this Samaritan woman and her neighbors. He had to go through Samaria in this sense. If he followed the flow of the culture, it would have caused him to bypass the very people who needed the truth of the gospel. The easy thing for him to do would have been to avoid the region altogether. Or, if he had gone through the region, at least, if he's going to be politically correct in a first century Jewish culture, if he had gone through the region, at least he could have avoided contact with the Samaritans, right? Let me just get through here and not, not talk to any of these people. Because that's just not culturally acceptable. I mean, look at the reaction of this woman when he speaks to her. She's like, whoa. You're talking to me? Why is she surprised? Because that was the culture of the day. How many of you are old enough to remember the Iron Curtain? Remember the Iron Curtain? Yeah. It's getting to be a few years ago, isn't it? It's, it's been down for quite some time, but things haven't changed for everybody. For years, the Iron Curtain, which was actually a fence at some point, separated two populations of red deer living in the forest encompassing the border between Germany and what is now the Czech Republic. And when government officials began to dismantle this fence in 1989, around the time that the Berlin Wall came down, 
The physical barrier between these two populations of deer was removed. But when wildlife biologists began studying these deer in 2002, they quickly realized that the deer in Germany were not migrating into the Czech Republic. And the herd of deer in the Czech Republic, they were not migrating into Germany. In other words, both populations of deer were still behaving as if the fence remained intact. One deer in particular had become a, a microcosm of the entire population. Her movements in the forest of, of uh, eastern Germany were tracked for several years by putting a, a GPS collar on her. It was, it was given to her, it was affixed to her by a biologist named Marco Hurek. And during the time that she was monitored, they tracked her location over 11,000 times. In other words, they, they, they took a reading of where she was at 11,000 times Every single time she was in Germany, not once did she ever go into the Czech Republic. Sometimes she got close to the border, but she never crossed over. Two elements of this dear story are particularly noteworthy. First, she was born 18 years after the destruction of the Berlin Wall and the fence that comprised the Iron Curtain. So she had no physical memory of this barrier at all. And yet she was still blocked by it. Second, the land that formerly occupied the fence and its guard towers and all that went with it had been turned into a large and thriving nature preserve. It was uh, the perfect environment, hospitable to a, a deer, perfect home for a deer, and yet this deer and her family never entered this biologist Marco Hurek and his team of biologists have come up with several explanations as to why these herds will not mix and will not cross the border. He says most deer travel across traditional trails, one that is passed down through generations by modeling and repetition. And it's possible that this deer and the other members of a herd simply haven't ventured beyond the beaten path. In other words, they've been following the path that generations of deer had followed. And that path went close to the border, but it never crossed it because for years that fence was there. Now the fence is gone, but the paths still remain, and they're following those paths. That's one explanation. But while a wildlife filmmaker who often works in that area has a different explanation, he says it this way, the wall in the head is still there. A physical barrier may be gone, but the wall in their head is still there. For many of us, there is a wall in our head that naturally steers us away from somebody who is a devout Muslim or Hindu or Wiccan or even a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. Mixing with such folks beyond what is required for us at school or work or whatever may not be the natural inclination of most of us. It may be for some of you, but for many of us, that may not be the natural inclination. And I understand that, but that's why you and I must make it our intent to seek them out. It is too easy for us to avoid people who are not like us. Jesus could have made that decision, but he chose not to. And if we're going to be like Jesus as we interact with people in this life, then we must make the effort to seek them out. Number two, seek out Samaritans because religion is not enough. Religion on its own is not enough. And Samaritans were religious people. And you know what? Their religion had a lot in common with Judaism. They believed in God. 
Uh, they accepted Moses as a prophet and they accepted the five books that he wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as scripture. They didn't go beyond that, but they accepted that as scripture. They even were waiting for their own version of the Messiah to come. And so if you were inclined to do so, you could see a lot of commonality between Judaism and the religion of the Samaritans. And having seen that commonality, you might conclude that they were people of faith just like the Jews, and so they were right with God. But it wasn't what they shared in common that mattered the most. It was where they differed. Under the Old Covenant, God had clearly communicated how His people were to worship Him. He had established a priesthood. He had established a temple in Jerusalem, which were means by which people could approach Him in worship. He had forbidden the use of idols or the worship of any other god. But the Samaritans didn't adhere to this. They worshipped God on their own terms. They took a mix of Judaism and of some pagan practices and they put them together and they came up with their own faith system. But it was a faith system that did not honor God and did not honor the truth. You know, in our increasingly diverse and tolerant culture, and those are not bad things necessarily, but in this climate of diversity and tolerance, we are prone to focus on what people of faith have in common rather than the differences that distinguish truth, one truth claim from another. It's a lowest common denominator approach to religion. And the upshot of it is, is this. If you're a person of faith, and if I'm a person of faith, then that's what matters most. And whatever differences we might have are really inconsequential. What what really matters most is the lowest common denominator, and that is that we are all people of faith. But the truth is that faith isn't enough. Sincerity isn't enough if you're sincerely wrong. I've told this illustration, I've told this story before. But it's a great illustration of this truth. When I was in college, I sold shoes for JCPenney's. And uh, so one day I'm in the the store, the JCPenney there in Dadeland Mall in Miami. And a lady comes in with a box of shoes. She puts them on the counter. They were in the box. They were in good condition. She wanted to return them. I don't remember why it didn't fit or something. But as I looked at the shoes, I noticed that they were a particular brand. They were Colhan. And we didn't sell those at J.C. Penney. And so I told her, ma'am, I cannot you know, take these shoes and give you money for them because we don't, we don't sell this brand at our store. She said, oh, yes, you do. I bought it at this store. I said, no, ma'am, you, you couldn't have because we don't sell Cole Haan shoes here. I'm, you know, I wish I could help, but I can't. And she became more adamant. No, I bought them at the store. I bought them at this very counter, and you're going to give me a refund. You know, ma'am, I can't give you a refund for a product that we don't sell. So she got very angry with me and very agitated. She took out a piece of paper and she took out a pen and she was going to write down my name and go find the store manager or my supervisor or somebody and report me. And as she took out the pen and the paper, she looked at my name tag and then she froze. And she looked around and she said, oh, this is J.C. Penney's? <laughs> She'd walked into the wrong store. She was sincere. Oh, she was even passionate about what she believed to be true and she was wrong. Listen, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we question the sincerity or the depth of devotion that people have in other religions. There's some tremendously sincere and devoted people. 
What I'm saying is this, sincerity is no substitute for the truth. Faith in a false claim has no value. The Samaritans had bought into a religious system that distorted the truth. And so Jesus comes and he confronts this woman and her neighbors with the truth. And notice that Jesus starts by pointing to himself as the source of life. I will give you living water that will bubble up to eternal life. And this is where any discussion of the truth must start. Who do we believe Jesus to be? What did Jesus do for us? This is the critical difference that separates the truth of Christianity from other world religions. There may be a lot of commonality in other areas. You may look at other religious systems. You may say, well, look at all we have in common. There's a moral code that's very similar. Look at that. And I believe the reason that that's the case is that God has put a moral conscience in every person. We can ignore it. But innately, we have this sense of right and wrong. So there may be a lot of commonality, but it's the claims of Jesus Christ that divide what is true from what is false. Any truth claim that doesn't recognize Jesus as the one true God, having come in human flesh and as the only means of salvation is a false religion. Why do we seek out Samaritans in our own lives and in our own culture? Because being a person of faith is just not enough. What is the object of your faith? That's the question. Remember, part of our purpose as a church, you remember our purpose statement? Part of our purpose is to reach the world with the message. Now, some of you may be saying to yourself, yeah, but one of the reasons I kind of avoid talking to people of other kind of religious backgrounds, I just, I'm not quite sure all that they believe and, and how it compares and how I should talk with them. And, and, and I understand that. And so we have an obligation as Christians, don't we, to learn what people believe who live around us so that we can have an intelligent conversation with them. I've put a couple of resources in your notes. The first one is fortruth.net. This is a, a resource of the North American Mission Board. If you go on that website, on the left is a little menu. Two of the options are this, world religions and new religions and cults. And you click on either one of those and it's going to give you a list of, of, of different religions and different cults in America, theological cults. And, and if you know somebody that's a part of a particular religion or a particular cult, and you want to know more about what they believe, that's an excellent resource, a brief kind of summary and comparison of what they believe versus what the Bible teaches to be true. The other one is truelife.org. Now, this one ought to be familiar to you because of our invitation cards. By the way, if you don't have these, you're not carrying them with you, grab some. They're in the back. They're on the side here. They're in the Family Ministry Center. On one side, it has our church times. So when you invite somebody to church, you can give them a resource that has our times on them, has our website on there, has our contact information. But on the back, there's a website, truelife.org. Free video answers to life's hard questions. It's an excellent resource. And if you go on there, what you'll see is that there are two videos. There are a number of videos, but two with regard to other religions. One about Jehovah's Witnesses and one about Mormons. And they're excellent. You can go on there and you can, you can, you can hear people talking about what distinguishes the, the truth claims of Christianity from those of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. And you can think intelligently about what we believe versus what they believe. And you can have an intelligent conversation for God's kingdom. And so we must seek out Samaritans in our own lives. Because faith on, it own, on its own, if it's not faith in Jesus Christ is not enough. 
Number three, seek out Samaritans because God is at work. God is at work. This story ends with Jesus saying to his disciples, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Which loosely translated means God is at work in people from all kinds of religious and cultural backgrounds. He is working in people. Being in a university town, we have a great opportunity to reach out to a lot of people from a lot of different cultural and religious backgrounds. There are 6,000 international students at the University of Florida. Many of them come here with their families, so you can multiply that out. Some of them relocate here and stay in the area. We have visiting professors from around the world that come to teach at the University of Florida. We have a great opportunity. Right here in Alachua, we have the largest group of Hare Krishnas in, our commun- in the country. Right here in Alachua, not, what, five miles from our church, there's a very active Hare Krishna temple. Right here, listen folks, this is our Samaria. Anybody see the paper this morning? Front page, above the fold. Happy to be in Alachua. Krishnas look to grow. Plans include building a retreat center and new temple over the next 20 years. Now I show you that not because they're the enemy and we need to, you know, take more ground than they... I show you that because this is our Samaria. People who are geographically very, very close to us. But listen, honestly, culturally and religiously are worlds apart. But we cannot afford to stick our heads into the sand and say, I'm not going to deal with them because I just don't understand them. God loves them every bit as much as he loves you and I. And if we're going to be like Jesus, we've got to seek them out. Somebody told you, right? Somebody told you about what Jesus Christ had done for you. Imagine if somebody said, you know what, and I, I just don't want to take the effort to do that. It's our obligation, it's our privilege to seek out people to tell them about Jesus. One ministry in our area that's doing this with international students is the International Learning Center in Gainesville. I'm going to ask Mary Lynn Moore to come on up. And she's the director of the ILC. She's going to take just a few minutes to tell you about what the ILC does, how they connect with, with internationals in our community, and how you can be involved in that as well. The world is coming to us. When I started at the International Learning Center seven years ago, I was new to the ministry. But I realized very quickly that the world was coming to us. In this past year, we enrolled 144 students from 21 countries. And I thought that was amazing. But when I looked back over the last seven years that I have been involved with the International Learning Center teaching English, I discovered that we have enrolled 681 different students from 47 countries. South Korea is our largest followed by China, and just recently Brazil has moved into third place. But to give you an idea, Argentina, Armenia, Bangladesh, Cameroon, Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, Cuba, Dominican Republic, Ecuador, El Salvador, France, Germany, Haiti, Honduras, Hungary, India, Iran, Israel, Italy, Japan, Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Mexico, Morocco, Nicaragua, Palestine, Panama, Peru, Philippines, Poland, Puerto Rico, Romania, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Spain, Sudan, Syria, Taiwan, Thailand, Turkey, Venezuela, Vietnam. 47 countries. The world is coming to us. 
On their application, I ask them their religious background. Most leave it blank. A few put down Hindu, Buddhist, some Christians, but most leave it blank. The world is coming to us. We teach English, but in the process, we teach the Bible. Every class day, which is twice a week, I do a Bible devotional that teaches English. And from that, I receive different comments, and I want to share several of those with you. Earlier this year, we had several Turkish students coming, and one of them had been with us for six months, and someone gave me a Turkish Bible and said, do you think you can use this? And I said, I don't know, but I will talk to one of the teachers. Well, the teacher prayed about it, and then one day felt led to say to Niha, would you like a Bible in your language? And she said, yes, yes, yes. And she took the Bible and immediately ran to another Turkish couple and said, look what I have. And the Turkish couple came back to the teacher and said, can we have one too? And then they said to the teacher, where is the Bible verse that Mary Lynn taught from today in our Bible? These are Muslims. And they took the Turkish Bible. This week, a young lady, Carmen, I saw her writing the Bible verse on a napkin. I said, can I get you a piece of paper? She said, no, no, napkin, fine. I need to take the verse home to my family. It was from Nehemiah 9.17. You are a God who forgives. And then also on Wednesday, Yuka came to me, a brand new student. Monday was her first day with us. And she said, the words you spoke from Bible, Bible words on Monday. They spoke to me. What were they? And I said, Proverbs 16.24, and we looked it up together. Pleasant words are like honey. They are sweet to the spirit and bring healing to the body. And as I read them to her again, tears rolled down her face. I do not know what's going on in her life, but those words spoke to her. And I'm reminded of my friend Bill from Venezuela, who was with us several years ago. And he came to me on his last day with his face just grinning from ear to ear. And he said, you know I'm Catholic. I'm from Brazil. Everybody from South America is Catholic. But anyway, he said, you know I'm Catholic. And with his smile getting bigger, he said, but for the first time in my life, I know that I can talk to God and he listens to me, and he speaks to me, and I can listen to him, I don't need someone to communicate in between for us. God is my Savior. I can talk to God. We have the opportunity to sow the seeds. Most of our students go back to their country. We are sowing seeds. I call it sharing Jesus' love with internationals and sleeping in your own bed at night.
Thank you, Mary Lynn. If you want to know more about how you can support the ILC, because I guarantee you they need financial support, how you can be involved in that ministry, if you heard that and you said, that's something I can do right here, right now, uh, then, then talk to Mary Lynn. Listen, if you don't know how to teach English as a second language, they will train you on how to do that. And I'm so pleased that so many uh, people from our church have been involved in the ILC in one way or another. But here's the point. God is at work drawing people from various religions and various cultures to himself. And that means that we should be involved in that too. Maybe that looks like volunteering at the ILC. Maybe that struck a chord with you and you said, I can do that. Maybe not. Maybe it looks like getting to know that, that, that Muslim guy at work who's really close to you. He's a couple offices down, but you've kind of, you know, culturally you just don't mix. Maybe it's getting to know, maybe it's getting to know that Krishna devotee at school. Getting to know them and sharing both the love and the message of Christ with them. Whatever going through your Samaria looks like. Jesus said, I had to go through Samaria. Had to go through. Whatever going through Samaria looks like in your own life, do it for the same reason that Jesus did it. Because God is at work drawing every nation, every tribe, every tongue to himself. And that includes you and me. You know, there's, there's a lot of things I don't know about God's will for your life. There's a whole bunch I don't know. But there's one thing about God's will for your life that I do know. He wants to rescue you from sin and death. That, that's the story of the Bible. If you look at the story of the Bible from the beginning to the end, kind of the sweeping story that covers the whole Bible, and we're, Lord willing, starting this fall, we're going to have a chance to go through the Bible and look at this overarching story. But that's the story of the Bible, is God rescuing human beings from the consequences of their own choices. And this morning, God wants to rescue you from the consequences of sin in your life. He created you to have a relationship with you so that you could have a relationship with the God who is the source of life. But our sin has broken that relationship and we're cut off from that. And if we die in that state, cut off from God, the source of life, then that condition becomes eternal. It's what we call hell. Eternally separated from God. But God has made a way through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the guilt of your sin to be wiped out, to be taken care of, to be covered once and for all. That was the rescue operation in action when Jesus hung on the cross. And this morning, just like he sought out that woman at the well, he's seeking you. And the only question is, how will you respond? That woman had to make a choice. And you have to make a choice. How will you respond to him? Father, we thank you that Jesus didn't just follow the politically correct cultural norms of his day. But he did what you called him to do. He did what he came to do, to seek and to save those who were lost. Father, we're grateful for that. We're grateful that's what He continues to do, that He has sought us to save us. Father, I, I pray for anybody here this morning that has never responded to the offer of Jesus Christ, the offer of eternal life. Lord, I pray that You would work in their hearts today.
Father, that you would give them that, that desire. Lord, that awareness that they have a very serious problem called sin that must be dealt with. And that not only have you done everything necessary to deal with it, but it is the only way we can deal with it. By putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that you would draw them to the Savior. Lord, I pray for others who have already made that decision, have already crossed that line of faith and have put their trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us a desire to see people around us in a new way. Lord, we live in a perhaps a unique place, a unique blend of cultures here in Alachua County. So many people from so many different places, so many different backgrounds, so many different religions, sincere, devoted people. Father, we know that there is only one truth. And Lord, we don't cling to that with any arrogance this morning, but only acknowledging what your word tells us to be true. Father, I pray that you would help us to see folks around us in a new way. To take the opportunities that you give us. To bridge the gap, to cross the barrier between those who are close geographically but far away in some other ways. And Lord, I pray that you would use us as we follow the example of our Lord. As Mary Lynn said, to plant seeds, some of us will plant and some of us will harvest. But Lord, we do it all for your name and for your kingdom and for your glory. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.